Let's open our Bibles tonight to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16. You remember last week we looked at chapter 15, which is when David uh, finally successfully brought the Ark of the Covenant into Zion, into Jerusalem. Just remember that Zion is uh, a part of Jerusalem. Zion is just that little sliver of land just south of of the Temple Mount as you and I know it today. And that was where David's palace was. And they've uncovered all that. And if you go to Israel, you get to tour underground and see all of these things that David had built. And uh, it was at this place of Zion that David brought the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom's home. Uh, Remember, their first attempt was a failure because they didn't seek the Lord uh, to the proper order of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. They had saw the, they had seen, excuse me, I got to use right English. We are in America, are we not? Okay, so... So we, they, they saw the Philistines bringing it on a cart, and so they thought they could do the same thing, and they were sadly um, uh, disappointed when God intervened and, and slew uh, uh, one of the men who touched the Ark of the Covenant, a Levite, who shouldn't have touched it, and he did, and the Lord uh, smote him there, killed him for his error. And then David, remember, put the ark in the house of Obed-Edom's house for three months. And then during that time, I'm sure there was a lot of soul-seeking, a lot of frustration for David. You know, he, he wanted to do a good thing, but the means in which he was trying to do it wasn't good. And because the Levites had failed and David had failed, in their excitement to bring the ark, they overlooked the proper way it should be done. And see, that's why the ends never justify the means. Whatever the ends is, that the means to getting there always has to be the Lord. It has to be according to his will. It has to be according to his plan. And we can't skirt it. We can't, there's no cliff's notes to try and circumvent what God wants to do. In fact, I believe often it's that process that's more important or just as important, perhaps more important than the actual end goal itself. Getting the ark into Jerusalem was a wonderful idea, but the means to do it was just as important. And God was very gracious. I believe had the oxen not stumbled, had Ahio not reached up and touched the ark, just let it fall on the ground. If that was God, I mean, God was able to hold that thing together and miraculously keep it. Even if he didn't, then it would be the Levite's responsibility to fix it. (laughs) But God's grace, I really believe that if he hadn't touched it, he went that extra step and God's like, okay, I've been gracious with you guys. You're not following what I, should, I, what I told you to do. And see, God is not angry with us. He's not angry, and he's not one of these, he's not a God who is like, you've got to follow the letter. In a sense, yes, but he is very gracious within those things, especially when we do it with um, ignorance. But once we know the truth, we are accountable to the truth. And so he held them accountable to it. So David finally remembers that it was a Levite's job to bear it on their shoulders. And so finally they did. And remember, it was a, a national scene. It was wonderful. It was a, a great time of worship. The people were excited. Everyone, this was one of the most significant moments in Israel's history ever. You can probably count on, a hand, on one hand how many times in their entire history, even looking forward into the millennial reign of Christ, that was significant. This was one of them. 
And they were excited. And remember David. And I love David for his honesty with himself, his own worship of God. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to pull one over on anybody. He wasn't going to fake it. He was so excited about this. And he should have been. The ark had been out of their hands for close to 100 years. And now it was coming back to its rightful owner. And David was dancing and twirling in front of the ark as the procession came in. He, he, he took on, off one of his robes. He still had a, an ephod or an inner shirt that he had on, but he, he took off his outer robe and he began to dance and to sing and to whirl. And just, it was genuine and it was beautiful, I'm sure. And God was like, oh my, my goodness, David, I love you so much. And isn't it true that true worship will provoke a response? It'll either cause other people to join in and go hallelujah, or there's going to be people that are just pulling out the guns and you got a little red dot on your shoulder or right at your heart, right? It'll either make people want to join you or they're going to hate you. <laughs> and that's the way it is in the world. And so David, finally, he brings it into, the, into Jerusalem. He brings it into Zion, and it's a wonderful moment. A wonderful moment. And David even goes uh, uh, even further. He, he gives them um, you know, food to eat. Not only does he bless the Lord, but he blesses the people as well. Because he realized how big of a deal this really was. And so let's go back and let's look at uh, chapter 16. Let's, what I'd like to do tonight is read down through... Um, we're going to read this a little bit differently uh, you probably notice in your Bible, somewhere around verse 7, especially if you have a New King James Version, the translators put a heading there. It says, David's song of thanksgiving. And you'll notice that that goes all the way down to verse 36. And so what I'd like to do tonight is just read out loud to you verses 1 through uh, 6, and then down from 37 down to the end of the chapter. Uh, this, this psalm of thanksgiving, these, actually it's a medley of songs, and we'll get to that, is right in the middle of this. But let's just read the, the context, and then we're going to go back and look at everything in its order. So notice in verse 1 it says, So they brought the ark of God, and they set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Now remember, actually, uh, yeah, I better, I better keep going. I'm all ready to jump on it. So then they offered... Burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, notice, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he distributed to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph, the chief. And next to him, Zechariah, then Jael, Shemarimoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaniah, and Obed-Edom. Jael was stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals. And Benaniah and Jehaziel, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now let's skip down to verse 37. So he left Asaph, David that is, he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom and his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom the son of Jaduthun and Hosah, 
to be gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest and his brethren the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them, Heman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. And with them, Heman and Jeduthun to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. And then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house." And so it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, David finally brings the ark in, and there is great joy. And David uh, ministers to the Lord, and then he ministers to the people. And I, I, I just love that. And, and never forget the order. Ministering to God first, and then the people. If you want to see something really interesting, I would encourage you to read Ezekiel 44. We're not going to go there tonight because this just literally came into my mind right now. But read Ezekiel 44, and it talks about the priests in the millennial reign of Christ that is yet to occur in the future, the thousand-year reign of Christ, after his, second, after his second coming. He talks about the priests and uh, those who would minister to God, minister to him, the, 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 the holy things. And then the other priests who went away from the Lord during the time of the Babylonian captivity, how they had turned their back on God and rather continued in their idolatry, even in the midst of their failure, God is going to allow them to be resurrected. And he's going to have them serve in that time in the thousand-year reign. But they are going to serve the people. And so there is a responsibility and, and the thing we have to ask ourselves is, would I rather serve God or would I rather serve people? Well, serving God is, I don't want to say is easy, but I think it's easier in some ways because God is gracious and people aren't. <laughs> people aren't so gracious. You probably figured that out on the highway on the way here, right? If you were to cut Jesus off on the highway... I don't think he'd be doing and saying and showing the signs that other people do. But God is gracious, but people are not. Because we're governed by a sin nature. And we want a pound of flesh. And God is like, no, I don't want a pound of flesh. So let's go back to verse 1 here. So notice... They brought the ark of God and they set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Now, uh, if you remember, the, the way Zion was set up, if you can just look up here and you'll kind of get an idea, uh, Mount Zion was over here. And this is like, um, this is over here would be considered the uh, south, and this would be over here of the north. So David, so Zion is over here, and then going up a little bit, there is this plateau, and that is called the temple area. That, that's where uh, the threshing floor of Aruna was. That's ultimately where David's son, Solomon, would build the temple. In fact, we believe that that's the same location that Abraham offered Isaac. The same location. 
But this is the, the, the topography of the land. And so David is down here. And this is where Zion was. And this is also the area in the same area of his palace where he erected a tent to house the Ark of the Covenant. That's the only thing that was inside that tent was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, six miles away to the north was the tabernacle, the rest of the articles of the tabernacle, meaning that the table of, you know, the, the tent itself, which had been around for at least four or five hundred years by now, and it's tattered and it's, it's, it's falling apart. They're trying to repair it. But inside was the, the altar of incense, and on the left was the lampstand or the menorah. On the right side was the table of showbread. That's all that was in that tabernacle. And yet there were these two different places, the ark being in Zion, and then the rest of the articles, including the tabernacle itself, that they went around in the wilderness for 40 years. That tabernacle was in Gibeon. And so um, just keep that in mind as we go along. And remember, the Temple Mount is just a, a piece of land. There's, it's grassy. There's nothing up there yet. So they brought the Ark of God. They set it in the midst of the tabernacle, again, that David had erected for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, probably a filet mignon or a, 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 maybe a beef tip, a beef tenderloin, something like that. And a cake of raisins. And you know what's interesting to me is that David didn't have to do this. He didn't have to go that extra step. He blessed them in the name of the Lord. So David, as a, as a man of God with integrity, he, he blessed them in the name of the Lord. So his blessing was a spiritual blessing, wasn't it? But he didn't just stop there. He, he also gave them a physical blessing. He gave them a physical blessing in addition to the spiritual blessing. And I say this because it's important for us as Christians that we are willing to do both when appropriate and as the Lord leads. It's so easy to approach someone and, and, and impart to them the gospel. To meet someone on the street downtown in Rochester. I remember when I was uh, newly saved, I, I was the biggest target on East Avenue. Because everybody knew that I was a Christian, and every, every street peddler knew that as well. And they knew I had a big heart. And initially, I was just giving away money, I was giving away food, I was doing all this stuff. And over time, and it was a very brief time, the Lord wisened me up. <laughs> he wisened me up. But I... I wanted to bless them. I share with them. And then I would also give them things. And I'm not comparing myself to David in any way. But we as Christians ought to be willing to do both. You know, when appropriate and when it is led by the Lord. In James, you remember chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, uh, James, uh, the Lord's half-brother, said this. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says to you he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled, that would be a spiritual blessing, wouldn't it? Uh, kind of a lousy one, actually. Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Tulu. Right? He says, 
but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's the idea. If I have faith, it's going to produce something. Isn't it true that if I really have faith in God, it ought to change my life? It ought to change the way I do things. It ought to change the way I, re- I respond to people around me. Now, honestly, we have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We have to have discernment coupled with love. And when you're young in the Lord, it's very common to make these mistakes in abundance. And I did. I stepped on everything. And I think sometimes the Lord is like, you know, Rob, I wish your heart was more like the way it was in the beginning. Because in my... You know, I'm thinking to myself and the wisdom that I've you know, obtained and the things that I've experienced, you know, that somehow I'm, I've gotten up on this whole thing. I understand this and understand it, you know. And the Lord's going, you know, I really liked you back better than, than your saucy self now. Your pride, you're proud and think you got it together. But I think there is, we, we do have to be careful. But what does it profit if you give spiritual blessings but don't do the physical things? It doesn't because my faith in God ought to be such where it produces results. Because otherwise people can say, well, I don't see any demonstration of your faith. Now, my works don't save me. So I I can't rely on my works. People do that all the time. They say, well, if I do this, if I do that, if I give to the church, if I go to church every day of my life, even though I'm not born again, then then God has to accept me, and that's not true. That's not the gospel. And there are people like that going to church every day who don't know Christ. And Peter said it. He says, if the Spirit of God is not in you, you're none of His. It doesn't matter how much you give. It doesn't matter who, where you go to church and how often. Being born again is something of God, and it has, there has to be a, a recognition that I am a sinner. I was born in sins, and because I was born a sinner, I sin because I am a sinner. Until the Spirit of God comes in me and, and takes that nature and just compresses it and gets on top of it and puts its feet on top of it and says, now there... And he does it in such a lovely way, not with the grimace that I've got on my face. I don't want to (laughs) misrepresent him. He does it in such a sweet way. But this is the very natural thing to do when people are stirred to worship. David not only blessed them spiritually, but he gave them physical blessings. And having a cake of raisins and a piece of meat and and all of these things, it it was a significant day. It was a day to rejoice. But when people are worshiping God and they're led by the Spirit of God, the focus is first God and then people. And we always have to remember that. It's about God first. He comes first. We know that in theory, but in practice, sometimes we put people before God. And God's no keep me focused, keep me center. That's why we sing songs like, Jesus, be the center, right? We sing that song, but oftentimes he's not the center. I am. (laughs) Or you are. But certainly there is a blessing in worshiping God. But we worship God 
right? We, we worship him not to even the scales because we can't even the scales, but we worship because he alone is worthy regardless of anything else, no matter what. We will always be indebted to God and never the other way around. And there are some people in some churches that worship worship. They worship worship. And wrong worship can be an idol, right? We must be careful that our worship doesn't get to the place where it's only when one person is worshiping or when the full band is worshiping, only when the lights are just so, only when there's a background and all the stuff and when the lights are just right and the mood is there. Oh, I can worship the Lord then. And that may not be worship at all. That's just creature comforts. It can be. Now, can it be worship? Yes. But so many are happy to substitute real worship with all the, the trimmings around worship. And so it's easy to manipulate people with music. Why do you think all the politicians, they have people stumping for them? You know, famous musicians going on the campaign trail. They know, they know what has captured, already captured the heart. That's why they choose the big names. And they get them to come and they sing before they come out and play. And, and, and they're already, they've already got them culturally. Now they're just delivering a message and it's easy. Even politicians know this. But we cannot manipulate people with music and crafty lighting. And that happens. We should never manipulate people with false means, and especially for ill gain. We don't have a smoke machine and smoke rolling off the stage, you know, the dry ice just, you know, kind of enveloping the first row and everyone's coughing and people, with, people who are asthma are popping their pills and everything like that. And uh, you know, but that's not how to do it. That's not how to do it. So we need to grow. We need to grow and learn how to worship God. And it's much easier than we think. And honestly, it really comes down to just the heart, doesn't it? It just comes down to the heart. And then expressing that in a biblical way. The, the easy question, whenever you go to a worship service, whenever you're a part of a worship service, the easy question to ask is, who is getting the glory and the praise? And are there any distractions to the worship? That's all. If Christ is really getting the, the, the glory, praise the Lord. Is there, is there somebody on the platform that's distracting you? I remember being at a worship conference one time, and the music was so incredibly loud in a very small place. I'm talking it was ear-piercingly loud, and nobody was doing But everyone around me, people are just kind of like wincing, and they're covering their ears. And I'm like, where is the sound person? Where is the pastor to say to go up to the sound people say hey could you um take it out of 20 and bring it down to 5 you know can you just take that fader and just bring it down to 5 instead of 20 but nobody did it and everyone was in pain my wife was there it was a painful experience it wasn't worship at all it was horrible <laughs> so all these things matter but david he worshiped god and then he blessed the people and notice in verse 4, and he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. Whenever you see the word Lord in all uppercase, that means Jehovah. It means Yahweh. It's all the same. It means God the Father. That's what it means. So he, the, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, notice, to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And then Asaph, the chief, 
And next to him, Zechariah, then Jael, Shemarimoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Obed-Edom. Jael with stringed instruments and harps, and Asaph made music with cymbals. Finally, we had a percussionist. Strings and voices and percussion. And remember, I was sharing with you last week that until David really began at this point to really bring in the ministry of music into the worship service, prior to that, it really wasn't a focal point at all. It was mainly the sacrifices. And now David really kicks it up. And God was okay with it, you know, to worship him. David was a worshiper. Even when he was in the shepherds, you know, I hope that someday, and I'm just going to enjoy this moment for a second, because there's something about David as a shepherd that really has captured my heart. Maybe it's because we've been to Bethlehem, and I remember seeing the herds and the, and the young kids leading the sheep, and uh, one year we were there, and they, the sheep came over, and there's a whole bunch of them, and the whole, everybody got out of the bus, we were in Bethlehem. And there was just this big, huge open field for, it seemed like miles, and these sheep just came around us, and we were petting the sheep. Everyone's taking photos and selfies. It was a wonderful moment, and these little shepherd boy and girl were getting very wealthy because everyone's giving them $5, a dollar, $10, and they're going, wow, next time a bus comes by, we're coming over here. But just something about David just being out in the field and he would just worship the Lord. He would just be out there all by himself. Nobody was hearing. There was no, no audience except for one. He just looked up at the stars and marveled at the creation of God. There's something about the simplicity of that that really registers to all of us, doesn't it? Uh, sometimes the more simple things are, the easier they are to entreat and your heart is just like, oh. Finally, I'm here. <laughs> and it's simple. Now, Asaph, mentioned here, was the chief musician in David's administration. Asaph and his descendants would ultimately compose 12 of the Psalms, Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through 83. And 54 Psalms have this in the header of the Psalm, to the chief musician. And who is the chief musician? It's Asaph. David wrote psalms to the chief musician. He didn't need to mention his name because everybody knew who he was. To the chief musician, 54 times, 54 psalms at, at the very top of the psalm. To the chief musician. In other words, here are the lyrics to the songs. Here you go. Write music. I actually, I got a couple of ideas. I, you know, I'll play it on the guitar and I'll send you a text. And so David was like this. So verse 6, Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, they regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And here the narrative stops, as I showed you in the very beginning when we first started the service. The narrative stops here and uh, after verse 6 and resumes uh, again, beginning with verse 37. And so what occurs in between here, you'll see it says David's song of thanksgiving and uh, from verses 7 through 36. And it's a medley of psalms by David, specifically Psalms 96, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. And these psalms were written for praise and thanksgiving. And what David did is he wrote these separate psalms and he put them in here and he put a medley of some kind. He gave them to the chief musician. 
And they were all songs of thanksgiving. So that's what we're going to be looking at right now. So look at verse 7. It says, On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hands of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. So thanksgiving is in play here. And why wouldn't it be? Thanksgiving was in order. They, they finally brought the ark in, successfully this time. Now, the breakdown of verses 8 through 36 is as follows. Verses 8 through 22 are literally from Psalm 105. Verses 1 through 15, verbatim. Just, I mean, you can read, if you have two Bibles and you put them side by side and you read Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15, and you read verses 8 through 22, you're going to see the exact same thing, verbatim. Verses 23 through 33 are from Psalm 96, the first 13 verses, verbatim. Verse 34 is from Psalm 106, verse 1. And then verses 35 and 36 is from Psalm 106, verses 47 through 48, verbatim. And you can see me afterwards if you want to write that down for yourself. Most of, in the margin of your Bible, it'll probably even share with you what I just shared with you. But verses 8 through 22 are from Psalm 105, the first 15 verses. And, and it's literally the same exact thing as you'd read in the Psalms. But notice in verse 8, so we get right into it here. With uh, Psalm 105, this is exactly what it says in Psalm 105, the first 15 verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. See, David wasn't going to let this event of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to be something that was done in the dark. It was going to be something that was, he didn't want it to be a quiet affair. He wanted everybody to know about it. He was excited about it. He wanted the world to know. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Notice, not just the people, but all peoples. Think of how excited he was. And we ought to be willing to shout out to the world the wonderful works of God. And you know what? This is normal. To shout out to the world the wonderful works of God. This is normal. This is what we as Christians ought to do. But I'll be honest with you, something has happened in the last few years, the world has attempted to cancel and stifle the voice of the church. We caved for a while, shut the church down, and ever since then they've been trying to snuff us out. The enemy, Satan, working through the powers that be to silence and to cancel the church. But we will not be quiet. Can I get an amen? Unless you don't feel that way. I'm not going to let them do it again. We shouldn't let them ever do it again. We should not be silent. We shouldn't be quiet. We have the greatest message that the world needs to hear. So be vocal with your faith. Be vocal in your faith. Paul the Apostle exhorted us not to be ashamed of the gospel. What did he tell us in Romans chapter 1? He says, for I, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentile, of which I am. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jew. 
Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, sing to him, sing to God, sing psalms to him. Yes, sing back to him the things that God inspired David and the psalmists to write. Sing back to him. There's nothing wrong with that. Psalms are the, the, the most simple, pure forms of worship there are. Singing back to God the very word of God that he inspired to be written. It, can't, it doesn't get any better than that. That's why when we sing songs that are based on the psalms, it is like home base. I feel like I, you know, we're on very solid, firm, holy ground when we do that. Sing psalms to him. Talk of his wondrous works. And, and notice, not only to God are we to sing psalms, but also to one another. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 tells us, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks, there it is again. Giving thanks to, for uh, always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, in the reverence of God. How wonderful is that? And then in verse 10 he says, glory. Glory in his holy name. The idea of glory is to rave to rave or to shine, to boast or to celebrate. Think of that. Change the word here and say celebrate in his holy name. That's really the idea. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. And remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done. So often, if you're like me, when you're going through a trial or a period of difficulty, we seem to have spiritual amnesia. Has this ever occurred to you? We forget all the great things that God has done. Something has happened to us. Something has happened to us today. Something has turned over things or, or whatever. We could have a bad hair day, whatever it is. And we forget all the great things that God has done in our past. We forget his faithfulness to us and those who belong to him. We certainly forget his faithfulness to his people, the Jews. We forget all about that. And if you're one of those people who likes to write in journals, write down the great things that God has done already in your life. Before you forget them, start writing them down, rehearsing them. Write them down. And even write down the things that, of people that you know, of great things that have happened to them, and write them down in a journal. And here's why. Because then when you're having a tough day and the devil is kicking your can, and let me tell you, he's going to kick your can. He's going to kick you, and he's going to continue to try and kick you if God allows it. And every one of us in this room has had our can kicked by the devil. And he's not going to stop. But when that happens, you can get out, and you're feeling low, and you're feeling like, Lord, I don't even know if I'm saved. Have you had days like that? You, just, you begin to doubt your salvation. Everything, it, it just feels like God is a million miles away. You, maybe you sinned that day. You said something. You did something. And then somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you're a worthless Christian. <laughs> I know. And the devil's going, yeah, you are a worthless Christian. And, and the Lord's going, oh, my dear. You going to listen to those voices? And we do. We listen to them. But that's the time to take out the journal and whether you feel like it or not, I hate that word feelings. Feelings can be awfully despicable. Feelings can be deceptive. Oh, I feel a certain way. Hey, forget your feelings. Rest on the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. 
Forget your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you. That's when you pull out the book. You pull out the journal. You pull out the Bible, whatever, and you read and say, God, you are good, and this is what you did in my life. The devil's telling me I'm worthless, and they're telling me I'm worthless. My own wife tells me I'm worthless. My dog bit me, and my daughter spit on me, and now, you know, and then nobody loves me. And then you start reading the promises of God, and God reminds you, yes, Rob, I'm with you. I've never left you. you. You may not feel me there, but forget about your feelings. Your feelings are like the wind. They're fickle. Feelings come and they go like the wind. One minute I'm feeling on top of the world, the next I'm feeling... Forget your feelings. I say that with an asterisk, okay? I mean, feelings are real. I get it. You can't always... But just be careful about feelings because they will betray you. Your heart will betray you. You know this. Verse 13, O seed of Israel, his servant, your children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. So as we go through this, we're just seeing praise and thanksgiving. David just giving praise out of this medley of psalms. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. Remember that. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Yes, I said covenant. You might want to underline that word covenant, and you might want to write down some verses. One of them I'm just going to read to you. And what covenant is this that God spoke to Abraham and then shared the same thing with his son Isaac and then shared it with his son Jacob? What is this covenant? Well, it's recorded for us in Genesis 15, the first seven verses. Let me read it to you. Part of it's in the first seven verses. Remember, excuse me, Abraham, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. And God is speaking to him here. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? Him and Sarah weren't able to have children. Sarah was barren, and he was getting older, and she was getting older. And they're like, this is not going to happen. You're telling me of an heir coming from my own, on my own loins and from Sarah, and it, it, we got to adopt. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, someone who's not even from my own loins. And then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, and God says, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, and shall be your, that shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside, God did, and he says, look now toward heaven. And count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, Abram. And he believed God. He believed. Abram believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him, what? For righteousness. Because of his faith, God saw that as righteousness. And then, verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. Now skip down to verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land. Notice, to you and to your descendants, I have given this land, the land of Canaan. And he itemizes it. 
from the land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. I'm giving you the, the, the land and the people, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Remember those people who occupied Jabus, what we call Jerusalem today? So God's covenant with Abraham included at least three things, but mainly it was a land promise that he was going to give them a land, a certain amount of land. That was the promise. And that he would not only have the land, but his descendants would be as the sand of the sea or as, as, as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And also God promised him that he would have a son from his own body at an old age. Those are the three things that God had promised. But again, mainly, it was a land covenant And write these verses down because God would repeat that same command as we're seeing here in this text that we have tonight. He recorded it for Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 through 5. So Abraham, God spoke to Abraham, Abraham 15, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, and then down through... um, and then 18 through 21 of chapter 15. Then God reiterates that to his son Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 3 through 5. And then finally to Jacob on these different occasions when God is interfacing with these men when their father had died. God shows up to the son and says, By the way, I hadn't forgotten that promise to your grandfather and to your father. I'm telling you. And he tells Jacob, in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, he reiterates the same promise. To this land I'm giving you. God, can you believe that? Of all the people on the planet, God says, all I want is for this people to have this little piece of land. It's about the size of Rhode Island in square footage, square miles. I want them to have it. The world can have everything else. But I want them to have this land. And wouldn't you know it that that's the most hotly contested piece of real estate in the history of the world. Why? Why? Because God says, I want to give this to that people. What about us? I'm Irish. I'm German. I want that land instead. Well, you can't have that land. You got this land that's much bigger over there. But I don't want that land. I want that land. Well, your land is even better. It's good for you. But I don't want that land. I want the land that you promised. Well, I'm giving you everything else. What's your problem? <laughs> Have you met somebody like that? It's like the sheep, you know, being on, in a pasture, and there's a, a row of stones about that high, and the sheep will get next to it and look over in the other pasture and look around, and all the other sheep are here, and he's like looking over there going, wow, they got some really nice grass over there. Our grass is not as good. I want to go over there. That's where we get the phrase, the grass is greener, always on the other side. Because we become wanton, we become desiring of something that God hasn't given to us. We can't be content with what God has given us. So verse 20 says, When they went from one nation to another, speaking of the children of Israel, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. God did this. Historically, this has happened. God has rebuked kings 
who have messed with his people. He has rebuked them in dreams. He's rebuked them to their face. Anybody who messes with Israel is going to have a big problem. Even today, all the people who came against Israel, uh, Yasser Arafat, even in, in the wars of 67 and 73 when the, when the, when the Islam, the Muslims, tried to uh, snuff out this little fledgling you know, state that had just begun in 1948, trying to snuff that out. Guess who got snuffed out? They did, and God miraculously intervened, and it will always be that way. And yes, I can be smug. You know why? Because God said it, and I'm going to brag about God. <laughs> I'm going to brag. And again, God loves everybody, okay? But when you mess with him and his people, you are on very, very thin ice, and you'd better repent and run quickly and beg him to forgive you, or he will wipe you out. What happened to Hitler? I believe God sent a, a, a demon spirit to haunt that man until finally he just put the forty-five in his mouth and blew his head off in the bunker. Yeah. He had killed millions of his people. But notice, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, Do not touch my anointed and do my prophets no harm. So praise and thanksgiving are important in our Christian walk because being thankful for what we have and what God has done, it is. It's a work of the Spirit and it's a mark of spiritual growth and maturity in us when we are thankful for what we have. Not even so much for the things that we don't have, but be thankful for what you do have. Right? A thankful heart is a happy heart. Anybody watch Veggie Tales with their kids? A thankful heart is a happy heart. Right? Remember that? And Mrs. Blueberry, I'm so blue. I won't go into that. But notice what Paul said. He says, not, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. And that's what God wants us to be, to be thankful and content with what we have. He even goes on in Timothy 6, verse 6, and he says, Now godliness with contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. But we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we cannot carry anything out. Even the woman who was buried in her pink Cadillac, she's not leaving with the Cadillac. The Cadillac's going to rot in the ground along with her body. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. There it is, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we get into verse 23 through 33... This is from Psalm 96, the first 13 verses of Psalm 96. And so here we go. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Jehovah, he is great and he is greatly to be praised. His wonders among all the peoples. He is also to be feared above all gods. Notice lowercase g. You see that? Lowercase g. It says gods with a lowercase g. This is because there's only one God. There's only one God, and his name is Jesus. Yes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I know. One plus one plus one equals three. I know. But one times one times one is still what? Boom, there you go. One God. And Jehovah is God of gods. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. I love what it says in Isaiah 44. He says, Thus says the Lord God, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. No, do you see that? 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. Who is he speaking of? Jesus, of course, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So either God is understanding that he and the Son and the, and the Spirit are one, or he's schizo. He's not schizophrenic. It's not three. It's one. And he's speaking of the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Amen, let's go home. No. <laughs> there is no other God. There is no other God. It, it, says, um, it says gods because God knows that people will worship other beings, but they are not gods. But they are rather demons. Behind every idol or thing that man may worship, other than God himself, is a demon. It doesn't matter whether it's a car, whether it's a person, whatever it is that's causing you to worship, whatever it is, other than God, the, the motion, the, the, the crux behind it, the, the entity behind it is a demon. And don't just believe me, because Deuteronomy 32, verse 15 through 17 tells us that. He says, but Jeshurun, speaking of Israel, it's a name for Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and you grew thick. You are obese, God says to Israel in her, in her idolatry. And then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed what? To demons, not to God. To gods, lowercase g, they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. There it is. The word of God tells us who these other gods, lowercase g, is. Behind them are demons. And the and the devil is more than happy for you to worship anything. Please worship anything but Christ. Worship anything. Worship a football star. Worship a, a, a movie star. Worship a pastor. Actually, I wouldn't do that either. But don't worship anything. Worship Jesus Christ. Nobody saved you except for Christ. No one died for you except for Jesus. Don't give anybody the time of day. You worship God. No one else is even on the same playing field. There is no other playing field. There's one, and we worship him. Can I get an amen? amen. Yes, Pentecostal. Tell me again, amen. 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 Say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Maranatha. Yes. <laughs> Verse 26, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. If he made the heavens, then I ought to worship him. If he didn't make the heavens, well, I want to find out who did because that's the one I'm going to worship. But behold, nobody else made the heavens except for God. Have you read the first few chapters of Genesis? It's all about him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the whole universe in the span of his hands. Yes, he did it. He spoke it into existence. Worship and glorify him. Amen? 
Oh, I love it. Don't you just love the word of God? Don't you love the Lord? And do you know that he loves you? And he's delighted with you. He's delighted with you. And the fact that you love him so much, the fact that you come to hear him, and you, you listen to him, and even in baby steps sometimes, we approach him and say, Lord, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm moving that direction. He's like, it's okay. Just take your time. I got you. Yes, you're going to mess up along the way, but don't worry. I got you. You just keep walking closer. I don't care if it's centimeters every day. Just keep walking. Millimeters every day. Maybe you feel like you've gone back an inch. You just keep going. That's all I'm concerned about. Don't worry about the end. I've got it all taken care of. When you get there, I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be with you through it. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give glory. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And holiness is a beautiful thing. In our world, nobody values holiness. They literally think of holy as a four-letter word. And indeed it is. H-O-L-Y. However, holiness is a good thing. That's what God wants to work in you and I. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Is there anybody who can move the earth? Do you realize that we're out here, out in the middle of space, and nothing is supporting us, and God has got you spinning just the right way, at the right angle, and the sun in the right place? Perfect. I'm sure that just evolved over billions of years. No, there's no evolution. God spoke, and he had a perfect thing in his mind, and he is perfect in everything that he does, even the curvature of the earth, even the spinning of the earth, even the gravity, that he, the, the laws of gravity that he made. They all obey him. It must obey him until he says, I'm done with it. And then it ceases to be. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to, oh, I read that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm going back and rereading re, re stuff. Uh, let the heavens rejoice, verse 31, and let the earth be glad, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all of its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. There's a Psalm 150, the very last verse in Psalm 150. I believe it's verse 8. And it says, let, all, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And I wonder, you know, there's a lot of uh, allusions to trees worshiping God. And I wonder if there's something about that we just don't, we haven't figured out. Science hasn't figured it out. Scientists don't know. I mean, who can talk to a tree? So tell them exactly how it was when, you know, there's none, there's none of that. We don't know. But God says the trees will rejoice. <laughs> the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming, notice, to judge the earth. He is. This also is a truth that we must never forget to share with the world around us. Judgment is coming upon the earth. We live in the age of grace now, don't we? But after the church is removed at the rapture, then a seven-year tribulation will take place on this earth, which is the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting, Jesus-hating world. Verse 34 is 
from Psalm 106. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Remember, mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. And he delights in mercy. He delights in us extending mercy to others. And when you extend grace and mercy to people, it's unlike anything else in the world. You really touch people's hearts. Because the world is all about vengeance and getting their pound of flesh and, and, and being right and feeling right and being justified in it. Right? They do. It's what it's all about. You hurt me on national television, i got to make sure I get back and humiliate you on national television. Verse 35 and 36 is from Psalm 106, verses 47 48. And it says this, And say, Save us, O God, of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. To triumph in your praise. Do you see that? This is a very interesting phrase because it seems to say that in your praise we will triumph. And I think that's true. In your praise, we will triumph. And this is why worship is so important. Even during times of great calamity, peril, and even uncertainty. A great uh, thing is in Joshua chapter 6. Remember Joshua and the children of Israel, they circled around the, the city of Jericho. And they did it for seven days. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant. And they had the seven priests. They had the army in front of them. The seven priests blowing the shofars or the ram's horns. Then they had the Ark of the Covenant. And then right behind the Ark of the Covenant was the rest of the army. They go around one time. They just go around one time blowing the trumpets, excited. Think of, the, think of the warfare that is on the people in the city that's got gates all around it, you know, walls all around it. That's all they do. They come around one day, there's people that they're already fearing. They've already heard the stories of what happened to everybody else. And one day they come around singing, and then they go back to their, back to their tents. The next day they do the same thing. They go back to their tents. The third day, the fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, finally on the seventh day, they do it seven times, and then they let out a shout and the walls fall flat. Talk about warfare, psychological warfare. These people were thinking, these people are singing already as if they already had the victory because guess what? They did because God went before them. And in their praise, they were triumphant. It's also true. We see it in Acts chapter 16. We're coming close to the end here, and I'm going to speed it up. Forgive me. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, remember when Paul and Silas were in the uh, Philippian jail. And they were, their feet were in the stocks. They had been beaten with rods. They were probably bloody and bruised and beaten. Their feet were in the stocks in the inner part of the dungeon. And then it says that suddenly, it says that they, at midnight they sang hymns and they prayed to God. At midnight, bloodied and broken they're singing and praising God in midnight in the inner dungeon. The rats were probably standing up on their hind legs and, and clapping their hands. And then it says something interesting in verse 26 of Acts chapter 16. Suddenly then, at that point, suddenly then, there was a, earth, a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And in addition to being saved out of this stocks and all this other stuff, you know what happened? The jailer is about ready to commit suicide, and Paul leads him to the Lord. Leads him and his family to the Lord, and they all get baptized. How great is that? And how did it start? With praise. 
And what's the verse there? In our praise, we will triumph. To triumph in your praise. When we praise the Lord, we are triumphant. When you're going through something difficult, try to get in the habit of just praising God. I know it's hard because you're, you know, you just turn up the stereo, put in a, a, your favorite song or whatever, and just sing to God or, or just sing to Him. And then watch what happens. Verse 36, blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said amen and praised the Lord. And so he left Asaph, his brother, there before the Ark of the Covenant. Remember I said that there was the Ark of the Covenant in the tent that David made? And then six miles uh, north of Jerusalem, there was Gibeon, where the rest of the articles of the tabernacle, that's what he's describing in these final verses. And I'll just summarize them and we'll pray, because he has a group of men watching over the Ark of the Covenant in this tent that David built in Zion. And then he had a whole bunch of other guys going up to Gibeon where the tabernacle and the other elements were, the altar and the the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And there were many more that were needed there because of the Mosaic covenant and the things that they would do to sacrifice. And they did this in tandem. And then finally, then all the people, verse 43, departed, every man to his house, And David returned to bless his house. What a great day that must have been, you know? Have you ever had a really busy day? And maybe it's one of those days that you remember. A day where everything, it was a holy day to you. Um, Perhaps all of us have a moment, a day that we remember. It was just a blessing. Everything about the day just seemed to sparkle. And then you lay your head down on the pillow at night and you're like, oh God, if I could have every day like this. Because the truth is, Lord, more often than not, I just feel defeated and I'm getting kicked. And you give me a day like this and it reminds me what it's really all about. And Lord, I worship you. I worship you for your goodness for me. Because you're always good to me. Even when I'm going through difficulty, you love me and you're, you're using these things to shape and mold me and to conform me into your image. And conforming into the image of Christ may not seem something that everybody likes, but one of the things that we are also conformed to is his death. That's the part that nobody likes to talk about. But that's part of it, Christian, because we have the joy and we do have the, the assurance in our hearts and we have the joy, but there's also we're being made conformable to his death even. Paul said that. So don't be afraid of difficulty and hardship because they are just part and parcel for the Christian life. But don't ever forget that God loves you. And even though you're going through something really horrible, it could be earth-shattering to you, it could rip your heart out, God's going to use it for the good. He's going to work it for your good. And I can tell you from experience, and I know many of you can too, that that is true. Do you remember many, about five years ago, I remember on, I shared that big rubber band. It's in the, a drawer in there. And remember I showed you that rubber band, that big green rubber band? Well, we're like that big rubber band. And sometimes God allows us to be stretched. And we become like, oh God, if you push me any farther, I'm just going gonna, gonna to lose my mind. And he goes, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you over the edge. I'm not going to allow you to go over the edge. And we cry out to him. 
And then he gives us this peace for a while. And then all of a sudden, we're, the next few weeks, we're pushed beyond where we thought we could be. And we're like, God, I can't take this. Yes, you can. I got you. If you don't do something, I'm going to snap, Lord. And he's like, I got you. Don't worry. And then you go back to this. And then it's just this constant stretching to the point where eventually, the more mature we are, the longer we grow in the Lord, there's going to be certain things that are just going to bounce off of you. Where before, they would shipwreck you. And now you're like, I've been there. I've done that. I got the t-shirt even. And not to make light of it, because here's the cool thing, is that when you have situations like that, as you experience those hardships and God ministering to your heart, what happens? You share that with somebody younger in the Lord than you, because they're going through it, and they feel like they're going to snap, and you say, hey, listen, I understand as much as I can. I mean, your situation may be a little different. God's stretching you, but I want to tell you. I'm here with you. I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. We're going to get through this together. And see, that's what it's all about. We're going to get through it together. And we, church, we're going to get through this together. We're going to get through everything that's going on in our country right now. We're going to get through it together. And then we're going to be caught up. And I say amen to that. What do you say to that? If you do, then let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, just the encouragement of worship, Lord. We thank you for David and his thanksgiving, and we thank you for this wonderful chapter. Lord, we pray that you'd encourage our hearts tonight. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, make us malleable again. Lord, soften our hearts, Lord, because the truth is, Lord, the world has... Lord, it's true. You, you, you even said it yourself in Matthew 24, that in the end, the, the love of many will grow cold because of iniquity. And Lord, if we're not careful, we can get hard hearts. Lord, would you soften our hearts with oil? Soften it with your spirit. And Lord, make us worshipers again and help us to cry out to you more, more than ever and, and pray to you, Lord. And so have your way with us tonight, Lord. Give us safe traveling on the way home and a, and a blessed day tomorrow, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.